We've been rebuked. If you're just joining us, this is Backstory. We're talking today about the history of American athletics on the world stage, and we're going to turn now to another unexpected moment from that history. Teams from around the world had gathered in Nagoya, Japan, for the 1971 World Table Tennis Finals. Table tennis, or ping pong, often evoked thoughts of basement rec rooms for Americans, but the sport was a big deal in Japan and China. Nevertheless, these championships were an unlikely setting for a major diplomatic breakthrough between two of the Cold War's biggest enemies. As Bruce Walsh reports, however, that's exactly what happened. If you've heard anything about the events in April of 1971 that became known as ping-pong diplomacy, you've probably heard about this. Matches were winding down for the day, and a U.S. player stumbled onto the Chinese team's bus, thinking it was going back to his hotel. There were a few tense moments, and then the American strikes up a conversation. His Chinese counterpart, the country's best player, hands him a gift, a silkscreen with an image of the Huangshan Mountains. It's this wonderful moment where these two athletes, one uh, from communist China and an American hippie from California, uh, have this accidental meeting in the back of a bus, create this friendship, but that's just not the true version of the story. This is Nicholas Griffin, author of a book called Ping Pong Diplomacy. For the Chinese, this was a really methodical approach. The only person who didn't know what was going on was Glenn Cowan, the American hippie. Beijing had stage managed the event. Mao had been building China's ping pong team into a powerhouse. It became the vanguard of his soft power approach to improving the country's image abroad. This was a very deliberate policy through the 1960s. So they would send the team out to countries they were interested in establishing foreign relations with even before they had foreign relations. You could call them sort of sporting ambassadors. On the surface, relations between China and the US in 1971 were as bad as they'd ever been since Mao came to power in 1949. But Nixon and Mao had both secretly started seeing the other as a way out. China with a U.S. ally could cool down a growing Soviet threat, and China might give the U.S. leverage in their stalled peace talks with the North Vietnamese. Of course, neither side could officially acknowledge this, unless, Mao and Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai reasoned, they could first manufacture a very public, very friendly, and very benign exchange between the two countries. Which brings us back to the bus in Japan. Glenn Cowan and his Chinese counterpart step down from it and are surrounded by a scrum of journalists. One asks Cowan if his team would be interested in visiting China. The long hair says sure, and two days later, they were headed to Beijing for some friendly matches. The Americans had no idea what was about to happen to them. One day they're in America, then they're in Japan for a few days for the tournament, and 48 hours later, they're the first American delegation to enter communist China. I mean, these guys know nothing about China. There's no reason they should. We flew to Hong Kong, we took the train to the border, and we walked across the border before we got on another train. Judy Bohinsky was, at 15, the youngest of the U.S. players. Walking across the border was like being in a movie. There was this really dramatic, patriotic music playing, and it just looked different, and everything smelled different, and it was just like something that I'd never seen before. The arena in Beijing was packed for their exhibition games with the Chinese, but the crowd was different than the ones Bohinsky was used to in the U.S. Here, it's just people are very individual. They scream, they yell, they clap at all different times. In China at that time, in 1971, it seemed like everything was in unison. Everybody clapped at the same time or stopped at the same time. Bohinsky won three of her four matches and says it was totally obvious that her opponent was letting her win. The team was also whisked around the country, walking on the Great Wall and petting water buffalo at a commune. 
Rohinsky says everywhere she went, she saw pictures of Mao and signs with different political slogans. There were some that were in English. And I remember one, well, because I have a picture of myself standing in front of this sign. And it said, people of the world, unite and defeat the U.S. aggressors and all their running dogs. And when we asked, though, why do you have the sign? (laughs) And they would say, oh, well, they make a distinction between our government and our people. What Bohinsky and her teammates didn't see as they toured the country was how this trip was playing back home. Good evening. The bamboo curtain has been cracked by a ping-pong ball. No ping-pong team in world history has had so much attention as the American team now in China. The coverage it gets is extraordinary. Uh, On the first day that the American team is in China, there's not one, two, three, four. There are five articles in the New York Times, and none of them are in the sports section. They're carried on the front pages of every newspaper in the world. The American team are catapulted to fame, but they're the only ones who don't know what's happening because, of course, they can't read any of this press because they're in communist China. As soon as we left China, we went out the same way we came in. We took a train to the border, walked across the border, got onto another train. And on this train, it was jam-packed full of reporters, and every square inch of that train was full, and you know, we were getting elbows in the face and cameras just right up in our face. And this global press attention is exactly what Mao and Nixon needed. The wonderful thing about this and why it worked so incredibly well is that it seemed utterly benign to Western press. I mean, it was ping-pong, how preposterous. But what it does is it changes the way Americans think about the Chinese rapidly. News of happy American kids hanging out with their Chinese counterparts had been beamed around the world. A photo of Judy Bohinsky and Zhou Enlai shaking hands had been on the cover of newspapers everywhere. Maybe the Chinese weren't so scary after all. So what it does is it creates this enormous amount of maneuvering room for the politicians to carry out their desires, because ultimately Mao and Nixon had been thinking along very similar lines for just over a year until that point. What it needed was a catalyst, and ping-pong was that catalyst. Three months later, Henry Kissinger flies to China for a secret meeting with Zhou Enlai. In early 1972, Nixon makes his trip to China. All because they decided to give ping-pong a chance. That's Bruce Wallace in New York. You can see a photo of Judy Bohinsky on her 1971 tour of China at BackstoryRadio.org. 